Good morning. It is good to gather together again in this way, whether you are online or whether we are gathered at the church together safely at 30% capacity. One way or the other, it is good on a Sunday to be gathered to look into God's Word and to encourage one another to lift each other up in prayer and to be remembering uh, the importance and the value of this ecclesia, of this church that we belong to and that Jesus built. And that's what we're talking about today. We're in sort of a little uh, three-part mini-series in the middle of our Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, as you may remember from the weeks prior, um, this is the first time as Jesus is talking to his disciples that he talks about the word ecclesia or church or gathering. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in the place of the disciples and remember that they had never heard this before. Uh, Jesus had never told them that he was going to build a church, that he was going to call people out uh, as a gathering, as a representation of a citizenship, and uh, that that church would be built on the rock or the foundation of his identity as Messiah and recognizing him as Messiah. And so it's been interesting the last couple of weeks just to consider the purposes of Jesus, that he did come with the intent to build a church and that he is building a church on the reality that he is the Messiah and that he's building a church in enemy territory, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that the church is on the offense and that we remember that we are not at home yet but that we are in enemy territory and we've been fooled by a couple hundred years of uh, strange peace historically and geographically that the North American church has experienced and we've grown very used to comfort and ease and last week was a bit of a reminder that Jesus is building his church but he's building it on enemy territory and that we need to be prepared for that and that we need to not think of the world as enemies that we fight but the reality that the world is hostile to the things of Christ and that we need to love our enemies and we need to be prepared to give an account for the hope that's within us and to show how the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of the world uh, and not the same. And so we looked at all of that last week. This week we're finishing off this little mini-series in the middle of Matthew and we're looking at how Jesus plans to build his church. Um, because it's great to say Jesus is going to build a church. It's fine to say that it's on the identity of him as Messiah and those who agree with that identity of him as Messiah. It's fine to say that the church is built on enemy territory and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But how is it that the gates of Hades will not prevail? How is it that the church is going to be built on enemy territory? How is it that we are to prevail uh, in the face of opposition? And so that's what Jesus now is going to go on to today. And we're going to consider as we read on in Matthew uh, 16, we're looking at verses 17 to 25, uh, mainly 21 to 25. And uh, that will wrap up our look at the church and its importance uh, in the world and its importance to us. So I'll just pray and then we'll open up the word and uh, see how, what God would teach us today. Father God, we thank you that uh, you give us your word. We thank you that we are able to gather uh, by any means and to be your people and to um, stand out in the world as a different people that are called out and a different citizenship. And I pray that today that we would take to heart and know and remember how it is that you built your church and how it is that we are continuing to build it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, so as I said, we're in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 to 25. And again, it's important that we or we think about the fact that we've lived with this knowledge for 2,000 years and we take it all for granted, whereas for the disciples it was very new and very shocking. It was completely not what they were expecting to hear. And uh, so just keep that in mind and try to forget what we already know to be able to hear it through the ears of the apostle. Uh, apostles through the ears of the disciples, especially to hear it as Peter would hear it. And uh, I hope that wind doesn't pick up too much on the mic. I don't think it will. I think I've got it tuned right. So Matthew 16, 17 to 25, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So let's just um, dig right into this. Um, In verse 19, as I said last week, um, in addition to verse 18 being one of the most controversial in the Bible, that upon this rock I will build my church, and who's the rock and what is the rock, verse 19 follows very closely afterwards as being very controversial. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And as enticing as it is, I want us to just put that verse on the shelf for a bit because I'm not covering this verse here today. Jesus says this exact same thing in Matthew 18. And so in a couple of chapters, we are going to address it in Matthew 18 because it's a little more clear in Matthew 18's context. So this is not a special authority given to Peter alone because we will see in Matthew 18 that it's given to the whole church. And for now... It's effective for our purposes today to simply read this as, I am building my ecclesia, I'm building my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I am giving you access, or I'm giving you keys to heavenly knowledge and authority so that what you bind and loose here on earth, the decisions you make as my church, are the same things that are bound and loosed in heaven. That's essentially what you just need to know for today. And we'll dig into this, like I said, in Matthew 18 when we get there. So Jesus is saying he's building this church and he's going to give that church authority so that they will have knowledge and that they will be able to bind and loose on earth the same things that are bound and loosed in heaven. And he goes on, he says, Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And this is where we sort of start because this is a very strange statement for the disciples to hear. Jesus just got done telling them that he was the Messiah and affirming it and that he was going to build his church. And then he immediately tells them, don't tell anybody this, (laughs) because that's strange. You would think that after feeding the 5,000 and after that wasn't the time to rally the followers, 
then definitely this was the moment. This was the time to break out the publicity campaign. The disciples have just confirmed the identity of Jesus as Messiah, the living God embodied with them on earth. Like, just pause for a moment and think about that. This is the most groundbreaking news that could come to a Jewish person. That for 2,000 years they've been waiting for a Messiah. And the Messiah has now come, and the disciples have confirmed it, and Jesus has affirmed it. And there is no news bigger than this. This is the time to start letting everybody know. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Just keep it quiet for now. And that statement right there should be, and it is a big hint, that whatever this church Jesus is talking to his disciples about, and how he's going to build it, it's not going to be built the way they expect it to be built. Because Jesus is not going about this the way they expect. It isn't going to operate by the world's rules. And that is what Jesus begins now to teach them. He's going to teach them that I am building this church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But it's not going to come about and be built the way that you expect. And none of them understand this, especially Peter. They fail to understand this. So how is Christ going to build his church? How does the church prevail? And the answer is very unexpected. It's very uncomfortable. And even today, it's still offensive. And we have the summary of it in verse 22. Jesus says this right after talking about building the church. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the hinge of the Gospel of Matthew. It hinges on this phrase at the beginning, from that time. So Matthew is drawing a line here and he's saying something has happened and from this moment things have changed. This happened and then from this moment on things are different. So previously Jesus had been teaching on and he'd been teaching to all of Israel. He'd been traveling from town to town and he had been teaching on the kingdom of God and repenting. And in chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew uses this same phrase. In Matthew 4, verse 17, he says, From that time on, Jesus began teaching, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in verse 16, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, and that he must be killed, and that he must be raised to life. And so this is the hinge. This is the pivot. Jesus mainly begins talking not to all of Israel, not to all the people in all the towns, but mainly, not exclusively, but mainly talking to his disciples. And he's mainly talking to them about himself and what must happen. And the phrase there, began to show his disciples, indicates time passing. This doesn't take place like 10 minutes after what Peter just said. After Peter acknowledges Jesus as Messiah, Jesus begins this new teaching ministry to his disciples. And so now as they're traveling, probably back into the Galilee region, well, as we've discovered, back towards Jerusalem, he's now teaching them day after day about himself. And he's showing himself. He's showing them that this must happen. And it probably means that he's showing them out of the Old Testament scripture. Well, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament scripture. They just call it scripture because it's what they had. But that's likely what he's showing them. He'd be showing them things like Isaiah 53, 3 that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. You see, Jesus has to start to teach his disciples that the Messiah they're expecting is not the Messiah that was prophesied. He has to teach them that he's going to be the suffering servant. Or in Psalms 118.22, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become, become the cornerstone. 
So Jesus has to say, I'm going to be rejected. Or Zechariah 12, 10 says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. You see, all these prophecies of the Messiah are also prophecies of God's suffering servant. But most of Israel and the disciples and the Jews, Jewish people and the Pharisees, they didn't believe that their Messiah would be the suffering servant. And so this is what Jesus has to try to show them. He has to try to teach the disciples this church is not going to be built the way you expect. There are things that I must do that you are not anticipating. So Jesus says, look, this is who I am. This is who you acknowledged me to be, the Messiah, the Christ. Now you have to know what must happen to me for my church to be built. And we can't overlook the importance of Jesus saying must. The word is very strong in the Greek, and I think it's just works just as strongly in the English in the sense that we should read it as applying to each of the statements in the sentence that Jesus speaks. The must emphasizes the importance of what is taking place next and how it relates to how Jesus is going to build a church and be victorious. You remember, he said in verse 18, he said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, the gates of Hades are the gates of death. So we have to understand how is Jesus going to build a church that can prevail against death? The gates of Hades are the gates that make death look powerful and make death look secure and make death look invincible, as if when we die, whatever is dead is dead forever and can never get out of those gigantic locked gates of death again. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, these gates will not stop me from rescuing my people from death. These gates will not stop my people from being gathered and continuing and prevailing. These gates will not stay closed. These gates will not stop my church from expanding and filling up with the people who are rescued from death. So despite death, despite the powers and authorities of Hades, my church will prevail and grow. So how does he do that? That's what he's telling us in verse 21. And it's so surprising to the disciples and to everyone because what he says is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised up on the third day. You see, to build his church, to defeat death, to defeat the powers of Hades... Jesus must go to Jerusalem. It was the will of Jesus to go to the place that he would be killed. Everything Jesus did was by an act of his will in obedience to the Father. He was not a passive victim in Jerusalem. He was not a victim of the people of Israel. He was not a victim of Rome. He was not a victim even as some people try to describe the atonement, a victim of his Father. Jesus went by his will to Jerusalem. I mean, it had been relatively easy ministry up in Galilee. He was doing the teaching. He was being followed by the crowds. He had a few witty engagements with the Pharisees and sparred with the scribes and the lawyers a little bit. But what was coming in Jerusalem would be fierce conflict. It's enemy ground that Jesus is building his church on, and it will be only built by his sacrifice. So now everything he says and does will be misunderstood and misrepresented and misinterpreted by his enemies in Jerusalem. Now the greatest aggression will be brought to bear on the purposes of God, which as Hebrews 13:12 says, was that Jesus would suffer in order to make his people, his ecclesia, his church, holy. So Jesus has come to create a gathering, a people, and make them holy, and he must go to Jerusalem where the aggression will be the fierce to build his church. 
He says he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Jesus knows the opposition he faces from them. It's been obvious all through his ministry in Galilee that these people are his enemies, but he's going to go into their territory in Jerusalem and face them. He knows that they are going to reject his teaching and his identity and that they will want him dead. And they must appear to have their way. They must appear to win. In other words, Jesus must be killed. They must appear to win, and it must appear that all them and all the powers of darkness, what they thought would be their greatest success, is actually going to be Jesus' greatest victory. Jesus may be hanging on the cross at the end of his time in Jerusalem, but by putting the Lamb of God on the cross, he has made an atonement or a payment for the sins of the world, and Satan has just hung himself, as the song by One of my new favorite singers, Jess Ray, says, Satan just hung himself on his own gallows by putting Jesus on the cross. And also, Jesus must be raised on the third day. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. And Jesus must be raised on the third day because Jesus will defeat that last enemy, death. What Jesus is describing to his disciples is what is required for his church to be built and what is required for his church to be victorious over the powers of death. Jesus has to open the gates of Hades from the inside. Jesus gets into Hades by dying and he comes out by being resurrected. Now the gates are his. He has the keys. Revelation 1.18 says, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, Jesus had to go into the gates, get the keys, open the doors, so that death became vulnerable, so that death became weak, so that the church would overcome it by Jesus' victory. That's why he went in. And when he came out, he brought the keys with him. And that's how he will build his church now. Death no longer has any power over those who trust in the work of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross for us. Death is not our enemy. Death is now just an entryway into eternity. Hebrews 2, 14, 15 says the same thing this way. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus is trying to explain this to his disciples, that if he's going to build his church that sets people free from the slavery of sin, which is death, the wages of sin is death, if he's going to set them free from that, then he must himself die. And being raised again, death will never take anyone away from him who he decides to have. And that is how Christ builds a church that hell cannot gain victory over. He builds it by his own death and resurrection and defeating our enemy in that way. But this is all very different than what the disciples anticipated. Peter, by the Father's own revelation, has put his finger on the truth. Peter knows that Jesus is the King. He is literally the Christ, the Anointed One. But as soon as Jesus now begins talking about what that means and trying to explain to his disciples what it means for how he's going to build his church and what it means for him to be the suffering servant and the Messiah, as he begins to show them how his kingdom is going to come and how his kingdom will not come, they disagree. Peter especially disagrees. 
Jesus is trying to show the disciples that his kingdom will not come or his church will not be built by apparently earthly success, by power and prestige. His church is not going to be built by revolution. It's not going to come by the most fantastic publicity campaign. His kingdom is not going to come through earthly glory, which is what the disciples are expecting. That's how the world would do things. That's how the world would build a kingdom. But Jesus isn't building a worldly kingdom. He has to build a people, an ecclesia, a church that will overcome death. And to do that, death must be defeated. And so Jesus has to not be victorious in Jerusalem on the surface. He has to go to the cross, die, and be resurrected. And so then when Peter hears Jesus start to talk about crucifixion and death, he's had just about enough of that. It goes on, Peter, in verse 22, says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, Never, Lord. He said, This shall never happen to you. And at this point, you just think, oh, Peter, here we go again, right? You can just see Peter putting his arm around Jesus's shoulder and leading him off, you know, to give him a little scolding. And the rest of the disciples thinking, okay, what's happening now? But the reality is, is that Peter's response is so honest and illuminating and helpful to us. Whenever you run into Peter in the Gospels, just substitute yourself for him because Peter is us. Matthew is again giving us here a striking use of continuity and contrast to emphasize his teaching. The continuity is that it's Peter who is speaking again. The contrast is what Peter says. Peter is the disciple that makes the declaration given to him by God that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king. And now it's the same Peter, the disciple, that is denying that very statement that he had recently made. Peter refuses to treat Jesus as his king. So first it was God speaking through Peter, and now, just a few days later, Peter is speaking the way Satan would speak. Peter physically takes Jesus aside, and he utters two words that cannot go together. He says, never, Lord. Never, Lord. Now, you have to understand, Peter, if if Jesus is your Lord, if he's your king, then you can never tell him, never. No matter how much you love Jesus, and it's easy to give Peter the benefit of the doubt here, the reason he's saying this to Jesus is because he loves Jesus and he doesn't want Jesus to die. But even so, if Jesus is the Messiah that's been revealed to you, if he is Yahweh, if he is Lord, if he is Christ, then you don't get to tell him what he can and cannot do. And how often do we do that? How often do we call Jesus Lord? And then we call the shots in our own life. How often do we say Jesus is king and then we set boundaries about what he can and cannot do? And so we can sort of laugh a little bit at Peter here, but he is us and we are him. We also call Jesus Lord and many times take him aside and say, no, sorry, Jesus, that's not going to happen. This is a heart issue. It's in Peter's heart. It's in our heart. Peter doesn't yet really relate to Jesus as a servant relates to a king. And in this case, he's using the title Lord politely. Even at the same time as he takes Jesus aside and gives him a little bit of a scolding, he he politely calls him Lord or Christ. He isn't using the phrase to really mean Messiah. And this is very convicting, isn't it? Because Peter has had the identity of Jesus revealed to him by the Father. He has the supernatural relationship with Jesus, of the knowledge of Jesus. Peter has his doctrine and his Christology absolutely perfect in his head. But in his heart, he's not yet yielded to the Lord and not yet following the Lord's way. 
Although the knowledge is in his mind, he's not yet given up his heart. And he's a disciple. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He was a part of the miracles. Peter walked on water. His statement was the rock the church would be built on. He is absolutely correct in his head, but he is wrong here in his heart. And we learn again that we are not immune from that. We can know our doctrine. We can understand what the Bible says about Jesus. We can have our theology correct. But just because it's in the Bible, or even just because it's in our heads, doesn't mean it's in us or in our heart. And I include myself in that. I can give you sound teaching, and I can give you right doctrine, and I can have it all right up here in my mind, but on any given day, I can still get it wrong in my heart. And so can you. Some of you have seen me do it, and I've seen some of you do it. And so this is an important lesson for us from Peter, that even though we have the full revelation of who Jesus is, even though we can declare and call him Lord, there are still days when we don't have it right in our heart and we don't give Jesus lordship. So Peter is a caution to us that right knowledge is just the start. And as we're going to see shortly, it also takes right walking in that knowledge. But let's just finish off with Peter. It's not only just that he said, never Lord, (laughs) and sort of denied the lordship of Christ by saying that, but it's the fact that he said, never Lord, about this set of events. He said, never Lord, about these things that Jesus must do, which are the most important things in the universe. These events that must happen. Peter has no comprehension of what the mission of God is right now. Peter doesn't understand that Jesus is here to inaugurate a kingdom and establish a church that is upside down to the world. That he's going to do it in a way that is so different than what is expected. This is a kingdom and a church that's going to be established in humility and in an appearance of weakness. So Peter thinks that if Jesus is here to do what he says he is here to do, if, if he's here to build a church, then he has to build it the world's way. Jesus should not be keeping his identity a secret. He should be telling everyone. Jesus should not go and suffer at the hands of his enemies. Jesus should overthrow his enemies. Jesus should not be going to die. He should be going to his victory. Peter's heart here, you see, is still captured by the world's way of doing things. That's how you build a following and a church. His presupposition is that somehow out of the fallen methods of this world, Jesus is going to sprout and grow the kingdom of heaven. But that is not at all how the kingdom of heaven, how Jesus is going to gather the church together. That's not how it's going to happen. The kingdom of God is not of this world, and the church will not be built by simply brilliant and talented execution of worldly effort. The two kingdoms of heaven and the world are in opposition to each other, and the kingdoms are built entirely differently. And so the message of the kingdom or the message of Christianity or the message of the church is not just do better at what you're doing now. The message of Christianity is repent. The work of Christ in a person's soul is not just a little adjusting here and there. It's not just a little bit of life coaching to get you back on track. The message of Christianity and the work of Christ is to be a new creation, to be born again into a whole new life, not just fixing up what's already there. And in the same way, if we think that the church is going to be built by us doing kingdom work, by doing things of the world, but just doing it a little bit better, then we're still where Peter is here. If we think that the church is built just by us doing worldly things in an excellent way, then our heart and our minds are still with Peter. 
Peter's attitude towards how things should be done and how Jesus should be doing them is still a worldly kingdom attitude. And how often is that also true for us? There is a great deal of pressure. Let's be honest, there is, and we've seen it in many churches. There is a great deal of pressure on churches and church leadership in our culture to grow churches the same way that Starbucks and McDonald's grow their franchises. The church is not the kingdom of the world, simply spruced up and made nice. The church is not simply another worldly organization that does things better than other organizations and therefore is successful. We have to understand this. The church is another kingdom entirely. It isn't built by just being good at what the world does. Doesn't, we aren't built by having better music or better marketing or better messaging or better campaigns or better publicity. The church is built on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and on his followers joining him in that death to self and resurrection to new life. That's the only way the true church of God is built. And Peter's opposition to the cross means that he doesn't see the things of God and how God will do things. The, the fact that he's saying never Lord to this set of events of Jesus going to Jerusalem, suffering at the hands of his enemies, being put to death, and then being resurrected the third day, the fact that Peter says no to those things indicates that he's not understanding the kingdom and the church and the people that Jesus is building. And Jesus sees right through all of that to Peter's heart. Look at Jesus' response. It says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now we know that Jesus loves Peter. Jesus is always guarding Peter's heart and guarding Peter from Satan specifically. Luke 21, 31 to 32 says, Peter speaking, or sorry, Jesus speaking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So understand when you read this, that this is not about Jesus not loving Peter. It's not even about Peter's salvation. But as Jesus looks at Peter right at that moment, Jesus sees the influence of Satan on Peter's words. And what we understand from this and what we learn from this, again, Peter's just so illuminating for us, is that a disciple can have a heart that is wrong to the Lord. A disciple can have a distorted view of God's kingdom's work in the world. A disciple can even say things out of his mouth or her mouth that might come from Satan. And a disciple can say and do things that get in the way of the inbreaking kingdom, that get in the way and are a stumbling block to the building of the church. It doesn't mean we don't love those disciples, those followers of Jesus, but sometimes they and sometimes we are a stumbling block to the church prevailing against the enemy that Jesus would have us prevail. Peter was, and if Peter could be a stumbling block, any of us could be. So how do we not do that then? How do we be Peter the rock and not Peter the stumbling block? And Jesus teaches what, as Jesus teaches what he must do on his mission, he now tells Peter and the disciples what their lives are going to be like as they truly follow him and what our lives must be like. So now he shifts from what he's going to do and how he is building the church on his death and resurrection and on that power over death to then how his followers, how his church is going to follow that. 
It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now it's interesting that he says this to Peter because I think Jesus can see past Peter's words. Jesus can see Peter's wheels turning. Jesus, if you're going to Jerusalem and your enemies are going to overthrow you and you are going to be killed and put to death, then are we going to, is that what we're following? Are, are we going to the same place? And Jesus affirms that. And he says, yeah, Peter, you seem to be concerned about me, but I get the idea that maybe you're also a little bit concerned about yourself. So just let me clarify it. I'm building my church on my death and resurrection. And my church will only be built in the same way by death to self and resurrection to new life of all of my followers. Three things he says, no to self, yes to cross, follow Jesus. This means we put ourselves on the cross and we put Christ on the throne. And that's not the way the world would do it. The way of the world is, it's nice to see Jesus on the cross so that I can be on my throne. Dying to self is not the way to power and privilege. It's not the way up the social or the career ladder. This is not the way you build things according to the kingdom of the world. To say no to self, to say yes to Jesus, our, the kingdom of the world doesn't get that. This confuses them. What do you mean no to self? Are you crazy? We, we don't say no to ourselves. We affirm ourselves. We don't deny ourselves. We build ourselves up. We don't follow Jesus. We follow our heart or we follow our desires. So everything Jesus is saying here is opposite to the kingdom of the world. But it's to build the church. It's to build the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, no, that's not how my church is getting built. I humbled myself. I went to the cross. You will die to self. You will follow my example. And as an unexpected and upside down and uncomfortable and as offensive as all this is, this is how I will build my church. It's how Jesus has built his church throughout history. The church has always been built in the face of opposition and aggression. The face is church has always been built on the supernatural power of Jesus to grant new life by his death and resurrection. The church has always been built by the humility and the meekness and the apparent weakness of Christ followers who die to themselves in order to put Christ on the throne. Despite all odds and despite all the efforts of the enemy, this is how Jesus builds his church. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the late 1800s, looking back on the history of the church and on this very notion of how Jesus is building it, says it this way, such a fantastic quote. It says, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands, and then they pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried, each in his turn. It is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is how I build my church in ways that are completely unexpected. It is a church that is built on people who die to themselves and who put Christ on the throne and follow him. And the world doesn't understand this. And we must never forget it. 
Jesus builds his church on the death and resurrection that sets us free from sin and death. And we will build the church by following in that death to ourselves. No to self, yes to a cross, yes to following the Lordship of Jesus. This is how Jesus builds his church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the revelation that it is to us. Father, help us each in our own way to hear what your Holy Spirit would teach us personally. What do I, Paul Graham, have to do with this? What does it change in me this week? Father, what does it change in each of us to know that this is how Jesus has built his church on his very death, by his blood, we have a new covenant and we have a new gathering, a new citizenship, a new ecclesia, and that, that we as citizens of that church now die to ourselves in order to see it built. Father, there's many, many lessons here for each of us. I just pray that you would illuminate and teach each of us in Christ.